Spring will return, on the road the rain will fall, hearts will be warmed by the heat of the sun. It must be thus, for fire still smoulders in us all, an eternal fire, hope for each one. Geralt the Witcher hears yelling and cursing, and crashing. He has enhanced hearing, enough so that he can not only name the crashing item as a jar of preserve, but he's even able to discern the type of fruit contained within by how it sounds while spilling without. Though we doubt anyone else in the area could identify cherry splatter by sound alone, the commotion that draws his attention is the sort that even a near-deaf person would not miss. A woman on a balcony is yelling at a man on the street who turns out to be Dandelion. The woman, Vespula, is also throwing things at him, and the variety of missiles is matched only by the variety of her curses. Following the cherry preserve comes a flower pot, a tin cup, then some rags, to use her terminology. These aren't mine! Dandelion said in astonishment, taking a pair of men's trousers with odd-coloured legs from the ground. I've never had trousers like these in my life. Then a copper cauldron of at least two and a half gallons, a measurement whose precision is, in hindsight, a bit of foreshadowing, along with the seeming randomness of the hurled missiles. Indeed, a major portion of this story is dedicated to seemingly worthless items turning a huge profit, because most anything is of value to someone. More importantly, perhaps, that lesson is applied in this story to living beings. Additionally, Vespula won't be the only one to hurl insults, so that's a bit of setup as well though she is the only one to hurl mystery trousers. One might wonder why Dandelion continues to linger in range of the insults, and especially the bombardment, but the answer comes when his loot is the next item to plummet. He manages to catch it, signaling that it's time to move on. Off they go. Now, one might think Vespula's minor role in the story is over, but one would be wrong. That, despite how easy it is to lose oneself in the crowds where they are. And where are they? Here in Novigrad, the capital of the world, the centre and cradle of culture, here a cultured man can live life to the full. He mentions the mint, the seaport, four watermills, the slipper manufactory, eight banks, 19 pawnbrokers, temples in a quantity he can't recall, it's also 19, and 35 taverns, one of which Dandelion suggests they head to straight away. Geralt's expertise in fruit splatter noises was gained during his time with Yennefer, which is noted to be in the past tense, and then confirmed when Dandelion inquires, Ah, Geralt, I forgot to ask. How is it with you and Yennefer? It isn't. I understand. No, you bloody don't. Is it far to the tavern? When inside a tavern, Dandelion becomes something like the sort of monster Geralt is often paid to get rid of. And indeed, it seems the fees the Witcher receives are light compared to the favors Dandelion seems to demand from others simply for having been unfortunate enough to find themselves in his presence. Halflings are better than most at going unnoticed, but here in the Spearblade Inn, there's one, and he's the only customer since, as the proprietor informs them, it's too early for normal folk to have started drinking. His name is Dainty Bibbervelt, and since the two know each other, he becomes the target of Dandelion's mooching. Dainty seems wary, though such could be expected from a man who knows Dandelion's tendencies within a tavern. Dainty is quickly given cause to call Dandelion an ass, and Geralt agrees, telling Dandelion to stop it. Despite Geralt taking his side, Dainty's wariness seems mostly reserved for the Witcher himself. It's not long before he claims he must be going, but it seems he lingered just a bit too long. The door to the chamber opened with a bang, and in rushed... Dainty Bibbervelt! Oh, ye gods! Dandelion yelled. 
The halfling stood in the doorway in no way differed from the halfling sitting at the table, if one were to disregard the fact that the one at the table was clean, and the one in the doorway was dirty, disheveled, and haggard. Dirty Dainty immediately begins cursing at Clean Dainty in a manner well commensurate with Vespula. Clean Dainty tries to escape, and to assist himself grows much longer legs. As startling as that sounds, the Witcher has seen Far Stranger and seems to have already identified that this creature is a mimic, or as he prefers, a Doppler. After a quick scuffle, he reveals that his name is Teleco Lundgravink Latort, a.k.a. Penstock, due to to his close friends. An explanation is warranted, and we learn that the Doppler took the place of the halfling on the road after knocking him out. Dainty had been leading his stock to market, which Teleco took as well, of course. Even Dainty's employees had no idea about the switch. During the explanations, the Doppler seizes an opportunity and escapes, again in the form of Dainty Bibbervelt. They had not wanted to involve any authorities, as real Dainty knew they'd be likely to seize most of his property in the process of doing justice. Yet the authorities involved themselves anyway by presenting the now broke halfling with a tax bill for the profits the Doppler made by selling his stuff. Worse, the innkeeper's interests do not align with that of the halfling, and he goes to the highest authority of all and tells the whole story. Dainties and everything. Soon enough, the Novigrad Secret Service, a religious order, has accosted Geralt, Dandy, and Dainty and wished to speak to them about this Doppler business. Or rather, they don't want them to speak about this Doppler business to anyone. The encounter goes almost backwards, in a good way. The leader of the group himself is there, named Chappelle, a feared and highly dangerous man who apparently will use almost all means necessary to get what he wants. Something seems off about him, though. Rumors hold that he was in very poor health, but there's no sign of it here. He informs them that the innkeep is in prison. Whoever says that he saw a vexling at the spear blade, a stone's throw from the chief altar of the eternal fire, as a blasphemous heretic, and will have to retract his claim, should he not want to, he shall be assisted by the power and means which, trust me, I keep close at hand in the dungeons. It's common enough for the interests of the most powerful to trample the interests of, well everyone else. This is one of those times when the trampled interests were a threat to our protagonists, and thus the greater powers effectively did them a great favor. Furthermore, Geralt is pulled aside and quizzed about his intentions. It's a familiar enough refrain. The man asks him if he'd take a contract to kill Dopplers. Geralt refuses on the same grounds he always does, that he won't kill intelligent species, but also he doesn't work in crowded places where others could get hurt. Though Chappelle doesn't appear happy at the refusal, it's an act. It's exactly what he wanted to hear. Geralt's code of honor has put him in danger many times, but this time it may have saved his life. But Dainty's problems are not over. He has the tax bill to deal with, and fresh trouble arises as soon as Chappelle and his men leave. A man named Muskrat approaches, astonished that Chappelle hadn't hauled them off. How did Dainty know about the leverution, he calls it, in Povis, and to invest dyes that match the new regime's colors? Of course, by now we know that it was the Doppler who did this, and now Dainty does too. But Muskrat doesn't, and won't, given the powerful being that made it clear moments ago that one does not speak of things that may blaspheme the eternal flame. It might seem hopeless, the idea that they could find a shapeshifter in a city of 30,000, but Dainty comes to an important realization that the Doppler must be using his bank accounts and or relationships. Off they go. Indeed, through conversations with the banker, it seems false Dainty has been there quite recently, making more deals. The banker tries to maintain his demeanor 
After all, even bankers try to avoid insulting their customers. But he's very confused over how very confused real Dainty is. To the banker named Vim Vivaldi, Dainty is not only making highly questionable investments, but he's quickly forgetting said transactions within the hour. That is unsettling. Then, to heighten the interest, a message arrives from Dainty. Vivaldi confronts the situation. One Bibbevelt orders us to sell, and another Bibbevelt orders us to wait. An interesting situation. What do we do, Dainty? Do you set about explaining at once, or do we wait until a third Bibbevelt orders us to load the bark onto galleys and ship it to the land of the Cynocephali, eh? Dainty, as the customer, is able to defray an explanation for the nonce, and instead he uses that very same leverage to ask for a full accounting of his own recent actions. Through this, he learns that he has not only paid the tax, but has considerable other profits and investments still in play. It turns out the questionable investments were actually quite brilliant and perfectly timed. He's not happy, though, because he's still worried about Chappelle. Vivaldi, not given any answers, ventures that the intelligence service doesn't like the idea of someone learning about such a major <laughs> political event before them, and that Dandelion's access to courts and the nobility might be seen as the source. That perfect timing is suspicious, and Dainty's friends are implicated. They deny this, but Vivaldi says it doesn't matter if he believes them. What matters is what Chappelle believes, or rather what Chappelle will do despite what he believes, and their story is suspicious. But something is suspicious about Chappelle, too, says the banker. He has changed in a good way. I swear he is not the same Chappelle. He seems to become courteous, rational, composed, and... and somehow honest. Dainty flat out calls this impossible. But the banker is clearly no fool. Chappelle also wishes to expand on the eternal fire, building altars around the city with micro-eternal fires of their own, in honor of the true one at the heart of the city. As they are discussing this, Doppler Dainty is ahead of the game on this as well, buying or having already bought up huge amounts of pots, oil, wax, and twine, the exact things you'd need to make many homage-sized eternal fires. At this point, none of them have completely figured out what the Doppler is doing, but Dainty is, though perhaps not at the level of his imposter, a smart enough businessman. His concern over Chappelle notwithstanding, he realizes that he might as well let the Doppler continue making him money. But he also wants to confront his copy and discovers his general location, the Western Market, through the messengers the Doppler has been sending to the bank. Off they go. While Dainty and Geralt search, Dandelion decides to play for the market to earn his lunch, quite literally. This proves to be a poor idea as it attracts none other than Vespula wielding a copper frying pan. Almost the same moment, Dainty spies himself, and a double chase begins, the trio running after the Doppler while running from Vespula. Geralt corners the Doppler in a tent, and he responds by doing what Dopplers do best. What a hideous smile I have, Geralt thought, reaching for his sword. What a hideous face I have, and how hideously I squint. So is that what I look like? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> There's, the dialogue is so good. <laughs> the Doppler believes he is now a match for Geralt, but the Witcher knows better, pointing out what he's learned, that he preferred to knock out Dainty rather than kill him. Simply put, he's no killer of men, and the Witcher he's just copied only does it when he must, and this is not one of those times. The Doppler realizes he's been outmaneuvered and changes into Dandelion instead, and shows that he too can use what he's learned about his opposite. That he only kills intelligent beings when he must, and this is not one of those times. 
He tells Geralt of the plight of his people, how they thrived on the land where the city was built, what he had to do to survive, and how he means to do that now. Geralt lets him go. As Dandelion, Dudu thanks Geralt for letting him go, and they wish each other well. Expecting that he'll never see him again, Geralt is in awe as the Doppler walks away. It was one thing seeing Dudu mimic Dainty Bibbervelt, but seeing his best friend copied moves him to amazement. The precision in mannerisms and speech is just unbelievable. A final parting gift. Dudu even finishes the song Dandelion had been noodling on throughout the story. It would make for a fitting ending right here, but Vespula isn't ready for this story to end just yet. We learn a new thing about Dopplers. When struck unconscious by a copper frying pan, and perhaps other metals will work, I don't know, they refer to their natural unsettling to humans form. Now, it's pretty bad luck to be lying unconscious in a busy market if you're anyone at all, but especially when you're a creature most humans want to kill on sight. But the Witcher is awfully fast. He snags a large knitted carpet to cover Dudu with, rolls him up, and tries to play it off, claiming the man is sick and needs space. And up walks Chappelle. His intervention worked out for them last time, but a second time? Could they be so lucky? He orders the crowd to disperse, and given his reputation, they do so quickly. Chappelle is wary of Geralt, and vice versa. They realize that they have both believed the wrong thing of the other, a thing they would never believe if they knew the person they were wary of. All along, the reader is concerned for what Chappelle, given his reputation again, would do to Dudu. But also, all along, Chappelle has been concerned for what Geralt, a monster hunter by trade, would do to a Doppler, his kin. The realization begins when Chappelle calls to Dudu by name, and we were told only his close friends call him that. He tells him to turn back into Dainty, then he confirms that he has taken the place of the real Chappelle, who died of natural causes. What do you see in this city, Doodoo, and you, Chappelle? Had you lived on the moors, Chappelle muttered back, and eaten roots, got soaked and frozen, you'd know. We also deserve something from life, Geralt. We aren't inferior to you. Very true, Geralt nodded. You aren't. Perhaps it even happens that you're better. Chappelle sets about attempting to prove that by again using his powers for good. But Dainty, real Dainty, is ahead of the game for once here at the end. Chappelle is seemingly of a mind to suggest that Dainty adopt Dudu as his genius cousin, but Dainty has clearly had the same thought. And just like that, Dudu has a home. And Dainty's family has a being who isn't literally a cash cow, but could literally change into one, and is certainly a proverbial one. Dudu is able to return the favor to Chappelle by revealing his plans to supply the city with many eternal fires, with the added bonus of some leftover cochineal that he didn't sell to Povis to make the fire look even redder and, I suppose, more eternal. This is a man, half Doppler who knows how to seize an opportunity. Speaking of, so does Dandelion. He suggests they all go celebrate these successes at the finest establishment in town, the Passiflora, at the Bibbervelt's expense. Dandelion's positivity is itself a bit of an eternal flame, but the events of the day are legitimately moving, and even Geralt's mood is noticeably brightened. Even he is of a mind to spend an evening having a good time. Off they go. Mm -hmm. 
what a short story. And also round of applause, Zeus, for you getting through that whole thing with all those big words. I couldn't even get through a sentence. But it's a really, really interesting short story. It's a short one coming in at 40 pages. You know, we talk privately again when we do our calls every Tuesday before we do the pod. It grows on you the second time you read it because you're finding all those finer details and whatnot. But part of the reason I really like this one is because of the similarities to Edge of the World. We have kind of an out of place character in Doodoo who's you know, trying to fit into society. Of course, he's not doing the best things to have a great reputation, but there is a lot of those sim- similar racism is xenophobia vibes we see, even though Novograd is a free city. And I, I think, you know, that was one of the main themes that I really liked about this, but I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys thought of it. I thought it was a fun short story, of course, not as important as some of the other ones we've recently been discussing. The next one, the next short story is going to be, you know, f- have far greater weight to uh, the things that it connects to for the future of the Witcher story. But what are your thoughts on this one, guys? I like this story more every time I read it. The first time I read it on audiobook and I had just been very emotionally invested in um, Shard of Ice. So I was, I kind of missed most of what was going on. And it was money terms and the word doo-doo being thrown around. And I just didn't connect to it very much. By the way, somebody please, please tell me if doo-doo means the same thing in Polish as it does in uh, <laughs> English. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really funny, charming story. It's a really good-hearted story. You know, most of the people involved, almost everyone, even the guy you think is the bad guy, is is good-hearted and well-intentioned and and people kind of just wanting to get by and it all kind of ends with everybody being friends and it's definitely not as you know rich of a text as some of the other stories but it's you know it's it's a really fun light read and from here the book gets considerably more intense (laughs) so i think it's nice to have this this little fun with economics that i i think probably andre sapkowski thinks this is just like the most fun thing like you can't imagine how like enjoyable this is to him it it is it it is interesting because it has like some similarities to edge of the world and that there's a pub and then there's a campfire after where everybody's chilling out dandelions doing his thing of course dandelion is central in this one totally agree it's like like the urban version of edge of the world in a lot of ways it builds on a lot of what we learn there has a similar kind of it's silly for a while then it gets really serious and then it gets it has a happy ending so yeah structurally familiar but i think it's cleverer it's funnier it's a little tighter uh the way it's written like you said it's not as relevant to the main story but i think like you mccall the more i've read it the more i appreciate how tight it is the cleverness and all the like the way things are set up other things really effectively there's so much mirroring and of course that's a fun theme to have in a story with a doppler who is like a human mirror or a living mirror dainty to dainty Geralt to Geralt, dandelion to gandelion we have these like parallel intentions towards doo-doo where they both think they're out to kill him and in fact they both are trying to save him then we have these copies of the eternal fire everywhere and then we get this quotes like when they get to the bank dandelion says i imagine the bank differently and then dandelion meets the banker and the banker says i imagine you quite differently (laughs) and then vivaldi at one point says i'm telling you how it is and how it is is what i'm telling you (laughs) you know like all these like mirroring things and then Geralt's both armpits and his jacket tear. <laughs> you know, so. The saga of Geralt and the jacket is <laughs> a, a, a special delight to read when you when you come back to the story because I think it's easy to miss the first time and then it's like, oh, he's really concerned with his new coat. <laughs> 
Geralt. <laughs> Geralt is not usually concerned with things of trivial matter like that, like fashion. So it's really funny to him to be like, oh man, like, you know, he's trying to be the best dressed. And then, you know, Dandelion usually takes the cake on that because he's, you know, he's the, he's a bard. But I, and the fact I that he know. asked Dandelion, he's like, what do you think of my new jacket? <laughs> And then he rips it, dude. It's so sad. It's like, rest in peace, Geralt's jacket. Like, you clearly don't keep up with the latest fashions. <laughs> Just a point about Geralt's jacket, though. If it's tearing in the kind of stuff that a witcher has to do in the city, I do not have high hopes for it out in the wild. Just putting it out there. Sapkowski is always really brilliant in how he tells the story. Like, you know, we have the eternal flame, which is this serious thing because we, you know, we'll get into the white flame and, and kind of that cult part of it later on. And this is definitely tied to that. The whole doo-doo copying Geralt and getting his memories and learning about Geralt's morality is really fantastic. And also like learning about character's true intentions it's really interesting that we get a a nice lens into that because you know often when sapkowski is presenting a character you know we find out a lot more about them later on like at the end of the story we you know we find out that their what was previewed and written as their intentions wasn't their real intentions at all and i just really loved sapkowski kind of looking into the soul of these characters and it's just so funny to see doo-doo copy all of Geralt's moves and and them like you know, like this, the, the, spider, the Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other? Geralt and Doo-Doo. But yeah, it's just a really heartfelt story. A really nice light read before something heavier. It's like you take this concept of the assimilation stuff and with the elves where it was really serious and, and difficult and, and painful to read about and, and, and serious. But here it's it's a whole nother level because the supernatural element is turned up. Like Because elves, you know, we see that. We see assimilation with elves. We see it working sometimes. But like this... It's a whole nother level that, that so the, the prejudice, the reactions becomes even more of a, uh, a central theme. It builds on what we've already seen from other stories along the same lines. It's kind of a almost a, maybe not a peak of that, but it, it rarely gets this intense. I really like too a lot of the setup for Chappelle, how it's it's there's like little clever bits like you see when you reread it, you see like the talk about his health and Vivaldi saying his personality has changed. But there's one other funny one I noticed when he's first introduced, it says the man addressed as Chappelle, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's like, oh, the man addressed as Chappelle. Ah, so like the first line indicates it's not him, but in an oblique way. When did you guys catch on about this? Because there is a lot of like teleporting around to like all these you know, kind of chaotic scenarios. When were you first like, ah, I, I know, I know who Duty's impersonating. Like, I did not get it. I didn't mm-hmm. figure it out. I was just reading and enjoying it and not thinking about it. <laughs> but of course, after you like, you go through on your other time, you're like, ah, I noticed this like little line here. And that's kind of what's brilliant about it. Right. Yeah. The second time through, it's like, okay, looking for clues. For clues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let us know when you found that out too. Cause I was like, I was like, oh, it re- really, it really enlightens you when you go back and you read it over again for a second or third time and you're like oh man i can't believe i missed that (laughs) you gave dwarves halflings gnomes and even elves the modest possibility of assimilation why should i be any worse off why am i denied that right what do I have to do to be able to live in this city? Now we know Geralt having when he Geralt having heard a line like that, he's you know we kind of know by now how he's 
going to react. When Dudu says, I've been in your head and I know how you're going to react, the reader can basically say, yeah, me too. <laughs> because <laughs> this is not, you know, we've had several short stories and Geralt, we know how Geralt handles the situation. He's not a murderer. He's, he, he respects things like this. He respects privacy and, and people wanting to live their lives and things like that. So we knew that would work. We didn't necessarily know what would happen next, but that was a great moment and recalls a lot of these really strong themes that are present like throughout the whole series. There's a lot of like interesting um especially with the contrast to Edge of the World like you know the the elves we meet there are pushed out also of kind of like an, a of a human civilization, but they're like they're dying. They the the persecution has led to the point where they are like absolutely almost eradicated. And that is similar to the plight of the of the Dopplers, but we also see a lot of prejudice facing the dwarves and and the halflings. And Dandelion is like, "Let's go to the Pass of Flora," and then Dainty's like, "They only let humans in there." And Dandelion's like, "We are human," and then he's like, "Oh, right, you." <laughs> and we got we got we got to remember that dwarves and halflings were amongst the first races to really established the continent right like they were around then and humans more and more have acquired power and magic and that's why we see less and less of them so this prejudice thing is highlighting not only for the elves but dwarves and halflings which have experienced that as well yeah and i i just really like how that's filtered through the the perspective of the city you know the idea of this like cultured place that still experiences like polite racism i guess they're not murdered you know but like, and we do see more intense prejudice later, um, like signs about elves and stuff. Maybe that was before. I don't remember. Uh, everything blurs together. But you know, when, when Dainty's would be business partner comes up and is like, you're, you're a self, every halfling is a selfish bastard and a whore son and the dwarves are just as bad and you're all one tribe because of business matters. It's triggered by something supposedly, but it, it, it exposes what lies underneath. Um, which I think is kind of that very like, it's more of an economical like racism as opposed to like a cultural thing where we see with the elves or like, you know, like calling them vermin and stuff like that. This one is more of like looking down upon them, like a sort of classism almost, I guess. We could view it, view it like that. Yeah, maybe economic tribalism is a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Put it. Yeah. Like they like, oh, you guys only do business with yourselves. You don't. Yeah. And that's that is what he accuses them of. And it's <laughs> it's a dainty is like so used to it. He doesn't he ignores the insult. He's like, wait a minute. Hmm, I'm realizing something now i guess he has bigger problems to think about but <laughs> but i think right. that was <laughs> <Vivaldi>. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's like mm, yeah don't worry about this guy <laughs> Chappelle. now that guy i'm worried about <laughs> you have this note here mccall that sometimes there it might be that they're even improved versions which i hadn't thought about i, I like that a lot i'd like to hear you expand on that yeah, so even Geralt kind of notes that, like, he says it might even, you're, you're not like us, it might even be that you're better. And I think you can expand that into, like, the examples of Dobblers that we see. So, Dudu is smarter than Dainty in economics. Um, he finishes Dandelion's song that Dandelion wasn't able to find an ending to. He can't, he can't quite be Geralt, but he also gets more about Geralt than, like, he he knows exactly what Geralt is and is not willing to do. Um, so they are kind of equal in that way, right? Because they that's what Geralt confronts Dudu with also. And then, you know, Doppler Chappelle, obviously, we don't have anything specific to compare it to, but we do know that, like, he was apparently just the worst. So it's not just an improvement, but, like, it's so clever how 
whatever this Doppler's name is, is able to kind of cash in on that reputation without actually acting on it. And I, I think that's really clever. Um, although I do need to note that the, the poor innkeeper of the spear blade is like tossed into the dungeons and I really hope he's okay. I figure they let him go. Like he's intimidated enough and he's not going to yeah, create anything. I, I don't know, but sure. I hope so. It's <laughs> like he wouldn't like they, there's, they're shown to be not killers. So I, you yeah. know, yeah, I'm optimistic there. <laughs> part of what the, of the point is that like he, you know, he's using this established prejudice of the faith to protect the Dopplers, right? Because if anybody talks about Dopplers, he can crush that right away. I, 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 I think that's just a, a really brilliantly clever position to be yeah, in. That's uh, a great I'm rooting take. for you, Mr. Innkeeper. Hope you're all right. That was a real, that's a really good take about the improvement. I definitely didn't catch that, but you just laid out like several examples that it seems like, yeah, <laughs> I think you're totally right. <laughs> The finishing the song was particularly cool. That was really that's a, that was a nice touch. Uh, cool. And he does it right away. He like picks up the lute and he's like just instantly. It. You're just, right. He's like, yeah. I got it. Boom. Yeah. Well, well, and this listen, is also well, it's not called Winter, by the way, Dandelion. It's called Eternal Flame. <laughs> well, 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 listen to the two differences. This is the first part. So there are really different perspectives in the in 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 the ballad. Around your house now, white from frost, sparkles ice on pond and marsh. Your longing eyes grieve what is lost, but not can change this parting harsh. So that's like a very like almost like negative. Um, yeah. Uh, depressive type of ballad and then we go like doo-doo the spring will return on the road the rain will fall hearts will be worn by heat of the sun it must be thus for fire still smolders in us all an eternal flame hope for each one so then we like so it's almost like kind of how the story starts and how the story ends we got like a little bit of hope in the end as opposed to like a really like bad outlet and start so, yeah. so you know, always likes to kind of troll us with these foreshadowings but it's all there in the ballad i think yeah that's pretty cool a little another comparison to elves real quick the doppler's never had the same choices elves had you know the elves and they have each other that's another thing elves even as even as they're pushed to the edge of the world they still have each other but dopplers were so there's so few of them and that's why it's important that we're given clues that dudu and Chappelle knew each other uh before all this basically it seems like one day Chappelle became Chappelle and told Dudu, hey, look, well, look who I am now, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And like, wow, nice going, man. <laughs> that was a good, that was good luck. Because of that whole point about him calling him Dudu, which is only my fro- close friends call me that. And of course, he recognized him. So I wonder if they, they have the ability to identify each other. You know, can they like see each other? There's some sort of identifying, like, I, I can tell that you're a Doppler too. Like they can sense each other somehow. I don't know. But I, I suspect that's the case because they probably, there's so few of them, they may sort of stick together in a way but that's not exactly expanded on i'm mostly just guessing Mikel, I also really like what you put in the document about wishes i that kind of like when we were having our chat on tuesday really piqued my interest yeah so i don't i'm not actually sure where this kind of fits into the story thematically because it it feels like something from an earlier fairy tale story and this is this doesn't have a direct fairy tale analog, I don't think, that we've been able to really find. But I do find it really interesting that Dandelion, like when they all when they all leave the inn and they're eating fritters that Dandelion has stolen, of course, because he's he's the worst. He's a pastry thief. <laughs> he's the hilarious, worst kind but he's of the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, because he thinks he deserves it, which is the worst. But there, there are fish in, in this fountain. Um, and Dandelion says that he's going to make a wish and that there are three of them so that they get three wishes. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but, um, one wish each. And he, his, his wish is that someone will finish his ballad for him. Someone does. 
Dainty's wish is that someone will pay off his tax for him. Someone already has. Geralt's wish is that this whole thing with the evil Chappelle and the people with the Lamias that are coming into the courtyard will turn out to be a misunderstanding, which it not only is initially, it is even more because Geralt doesn't even realize that he's not actually talking to Chappelle. It's just like this weird little minor prophecy that's like in the middle of this story. Isn't one of the wishes that, that Doppelganger gets hit on the head from out of nowhere? And oh, that is happens it? too. Yeah, that's one of the wishes. Oh. That someone will just thump him out. Of, something will fall out of the sky and hit him. Oh and my that's, god! I and then Vespilla basically does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love her character. She's hilarious. <laughs> she is. She is pretty great. <laughs> She's pretty much the hidden dominator of the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, again, I hate Dandelion. I have plenty of issues with, but like the interplay at the beginning. Just with Geralt being like, ah, it is the sound of cherry preserves being thrown out a window. Must be dandelion. Yeah. <laughs> and the meaning of her name means wasp, which is hilarious. Yeah. Really <laughs> right? You can't get rid of her because, well, yeah, like wasp or will chase you. <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed to Tony and her just chill. Yeah, you know? exactly. Wasps are much more mean. Since we're about the point in the notes where McCall, you have your stuff about the recovery stage, which I think is a really great take. But I want to I want to kick it off with that line you just cited about cherry preserves. We've all seen like various versions of the trope where you've got the like really sad boyfriend. It's usually a man. And from my experience watching TV or whatever, like I think of Ross on Friends when they're just like every they relate everything to their ex. Like Jennifer used to throw cherry preserves too. <laughs> Uh, that when someone's when, when, when something oh when someone's with something sparks a memory in what they used to share yeah <laughs> i was like she would curse at me like that too <laughs> <laughs> oh man that is perfect ross is the perfect example for that yeah. oh my god it's just demeanor sad demeanor uh yeah um well so to work off of that i view sort of destiny as a very kind of deliberate arc for Geralt. Um, and each story is kind of a different stage um, of his growth and his relationship with Yennefer. Um, so the first story um, would be the the makeup because they've they've fallen out and they get back together. Second story would be the breakup. Obviously, no explanation needed. This story would be the recovery, where you know Geralt kind of starts at the very beginning of the story. I think it's like the seventh sentence or something. He's talking about Yennefer, and then even you know the the song that Dandelion starts singing with the around your house, the white from frost and all that. Like it recalls the shard of ice imagery. And then by the end of the story, he kind of gets over that relationship. Like his mood improves through the story with you know being with his friends, and and I think it's not not an accident that it culminates in him like yeah let's go to the passiflora you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, 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 common, the, the, yeah, the common trope of the boys going to the pub and having a few beers and wings you know what I mean? yeah. 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 let's get over let's get over yennefer it's it's interesting that i mean there's a couple of other signs like i think you know novigrad doesn't sound like the greatest place in the world like they pass by a dude who's like shitting in an alley and like Gerald <laughs> just does not have that visceral reaction to Novigrad that he does to Aethgen Vale and like which is you know something we mentioned last time that a lot of that might just be the effect that Yennefer's having on him which is part of what she recognized the filter yeah his filter's all messed up it's clearing up the filter's cleaning itself yeah (laughs) exactly yeah and then at the end you know the the verse Dandelion can't finish in his ballad is about spring and it changes to that idea of hope and a fire smoldering and like things kind of lasting that I think is thematically tied into that that idea 
Yeah, because they aren't done. That's for sure. They'd certainly get back together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's why that's the, the last story in the book. They, uh... No one understands yeah. Geralt like Yennefer. So <laughs> let's, yeah. Uh, I thought you were going to say me. You understand me. You understand Nivellen quite well. Oh, God. <laughs> there we go again. I have never oh, there we go. <laughs> Just a quick note. I didn't have any. I didn't have anywhere to put this, so I'm just going to say it now. The coup in Povis that drives up the price of Kokiniol. It's actually like a fairly relevant event in the main main series. The family that takes over is going to be pretty important in the main five novels. So just keep that in the back of your head when we get to that point. I'll, I'll point it out again. Kind of a fun little dot to connect. And actually, speaking of Kokiniol, I don't know. Which I think <laughs> actually Kokiniol, Kokiniol. Kokin- 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 um, I don't. Yeah, I, I think that's do. beetle dye. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, bug, bug dye, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's used in red colored food. I think red forty. Um so and, if you look lipstick. at your Yeah. So look at look at your stuff and there's there's beetles in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was reading about that last night. It's like, oh my goodness, that is wild. <laughs> the, the funny thing is like I've known that forever because it's a kosher thing. So like oh. bugs aren't kosher. So anything with red forty in it isn't kosher. <laughs> oh. I read that they tried to like make they tried to install the cactuses that they get infested with in like australia so that the british empire could have their own source of cochineal but all the bugs died and the cactuses spread (laughs) so they had a cactus infestation which was useless (laughs) and the cochineal all died so good job british imperialism again (laughs) just like how people tried to install eucalyptus trees in california and it was too dry and they all died oh yeah that's happened so that's happened throughout history a lot of a lot of times People got to uh, understand their herb lore a little bit more, Aziz. That's right. You got to have, exactly, right? You got to be like dainty, bibber, but you got to have like farming skills. You know, you got to be from not grass meadow or whatever that's called and have those. That's another thing, I guess, that comes up later is dainty when when dude is running through the crowd and and Geralt's thinking about why he doesn't change shape and it's like oh it's because he's a halfling and halflings are amazing at being agile and running through crowds so he's staying in that form because it's the best form for escaping and then we do see examples of of halfling agility later in the series which is very satisfying <laughs> yes yes halflings <laughs> halflings have a a, a pretty rosy future um, <laughs> they know how to take care of themselves <laughs> yes <laughs> so just just on the um coconut and the the tie into economics again it's it's hard to kind of pin down a, a general overarching theme for this story but i think that it it does have to do with like investing value in things that don't appear valuable um, and kind of vice versa. Um, you know, we have Dainty with like Judo purchasing all of this, what he perceives as, as trash, you know, um, and then wasting all of his money. And it turns out to make him a rich halfling. And um, even, you know, Dudu himself, who is like in his natural form, they all like are disgusted by becomes like a very valuable person that he Dainty wants to have in his family. On the spiritual note, there's a really interesting contrast between, like, the very high value uh, placed on the worship of the Eternal Flame, I think. Chappelle's, obviously, it's not Chappelle, Chappelle speaking, but, like, it doesn't seem to be out of character for him to threaten anyone with horrible torture for blaspheming the Eternal Flame, even indirectly. And I think that's really interesting that it's, it's, kind of contrasted with the way they end up end up maintaining that flame which is through these cheap materials and it's it's kind of like the value of the thing is basically what people decide it is you know like coconut was 
totally worthless before. And now, because of politics, people have decided that red is more valuable than blue. That's also really interesting to me. Also, Especially in fashion, like, in fashion, specifically yeah. red. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and on a dime. On, <laughs> right. Not just from pol- political reasons, but that is, yeah, that is what happened here. Yeah. Shall we jump into characters, guys? Because there's a pretty big, like, for those of you that, uh, you know, uh, watched a TV show and got into the books, of course, we get a Doppler in season one, and there's a pretty big change. They pretty much just make this Doppler a mercenary slash villain. Um, and we, it's, 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 it's kind of tough because you can't all, like, for them to adapt it onto TV, they're not going to be able to do all of the short stories, right? So they kind of pick and choose which ones are going to be the most impactful to kind of, you know, the connection to the, all the Blood of Elves stuff and Tom Contempt and all that. So, this was a little bit disappointing. I'm I'm in agreement with Mikhail and Aziz here. A little bit disappointed because we don't get to see the backstory of this character and what really makes up that person. And we really yeah. only kind of get the, the mercantilism part of it, unfortunately. Yeah, mercantilism, <laughs> yeah. It is, right? We lose the tragic element. We lose a lot of the depth of their struggle. And I do, I totally agree with you, Kyle, that, yeah, that's because this short story is kind of a standalone. It's like McCall said, it's part of Geralt's path in a sense it made like if we were all if we had all sat down to predict which stories would make tv i'm I'm sure most of us would have guessed this would not have made it but they still wanted to keep that element of the the shapeshifter in the story so they just did what they had to i guess so yeah i don't hate it i just wish you know i wish it could have worked out a different way but i understand Let's talk about, shall we chat about Vespula and the other characters and Dainty and Chappelle? It feels like we mostly covered them, yeah. but I'm sure we may have a few more takes. Like as far as we talked about halflings and, and what maybe the future of Dopplers and you guys have anything more to say about Dandelion or Geralt or Chappelle or anything like that? All I have to say about Dandelion is that he's just like blatantly sexually assaulting this <laughs> innkeeper's daughter and, the, and like she's falling to the floor so he'll stop touching her. And I'm just like... I I don't know how to hold mm. Andrei Sapkowski as a I believe feminist writer given later developments and just like blatant unpunished humorous sexual humorously treated sexual assault so like I, I wonder yeah you know I do too but I, I maybe I'm being too con- maybe this is too optimistic of a view but I wonder if it's it's something that you that we you raised indirectly when we were talking about this episode where Geralt finds value or that like d- the two changelings don't have like a community they don't have a lot of friends or a lot of people to pick from who their friends are and it's better to have a terrible person as a friend than to have no friends at all mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'm and like yeah. and if Sapkowski wants to show that he's got to make dandelion be terrible in ways that aren't like murderous you know like <laughs> right. and that's about the best best worst thing this kind of person who's not like he's not like a full-blown violent rapist or something that would obviously be far worse and unacceptable for Geralt so this has to be someone that Geralt can accept without crossing these lines and he just barely doesn't cross them I guess so that's 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 my con that's my like optimistic take on this but I'm yeah. of course that I could be completely wrong like yeah. in the books dandelion's Bad actions are way, way worse. I think in the show, they'll tone down in it for sure, because 
They were, yeah. they I don't think he does anything objectionable in the show. I don't remember yeah. like being turned off. Like I, I, I don't think he'd be I, the I, internet's boyfriend if he. Uh... I, I think they'll. I think they'll use it more as like comedy. That like like you know like, probably like, is going to be grabbing people. Yeah, yeah. Like I agree. Like that's like '90s humor. That kind of like in the way they told stories. Like when when you know G- Geralt was talking with the dude, and like he was like, oh, like he knew he hooked up with his wife. Kind of more stories like in the background told from like another person's perspective. We might yeah. get him more like yeah. that. I like think. He, I, I guess that's a great way to do it like the, he'll tell jokes he'll tell dirty jokes rather than do those things right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. that makes a lot of sense yeah and then that way we're still getting kind of the like the backstory of his adventures yeah and it captures the, uh, the essence of the character with but, but it tones down the the roughness there <laughs> we do have a female showrunner so I, that's why i'm i, I think she's gonna well, be more she's already changed a lot of really good yeah. things which is yeah so she's she's really plugged in she's smart well, anyway that's why i wanted to bring that we up. don't yeah we don't agree with all of her decisions but she is she is very solid I her, think. her perspective yeah. is is valuable The halfling finally sighed. I've been robbed and ruined by a creature whose existence I previously didn't believe in. That's what you call bad luck. That about sums it up, the witcher said, casting a glance at the Doppler huddled on the stool. I was also convinced that mimics had been wiped out long ago. In the past, so I've heard, plenty of them used to live in the nearby forests on on the plateau. But their ability to mimic seriously worried the first settlers, and they began to hunt them. Quite effectively. Almost all of them were quickly exterminated. So Geralt knows nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Geralt knows nothing. Geralt, you're bad at your job. <laughs> I wonder, yeah, I wonder about that too, too. Like, how did they do that? Like, Dudu talks about being chased by dogs and turning into one to escape. And, you know, like, how did they test for them? I, I, I think silver, like, I figured it had to involve silver, like, probably a, a subjecting the townsfolk to very invasive testing like testing for witches kind of that same kind of thing where they like i don't know whatever they did to test for witches but they would subject it to just almost any woman and a lot of men or like an iron cross that's usual trope of like silver for mm-hmm. werewolves iron yes. for which, which sets up a brilliant scene much later in the books that i won't spoil but i can't wait to which we're so far away <laughs> from it but it's so great the the whole undoing of this testing people for their whether they pat whether they're you know whole or not it's it's great and the, i mean they talk about uh the punishment for dopplers which involved like i think an iron bar between their knees or something and like being wrapped in concrete or some iron filings like it definitely has something to do with metal and it's not pleasant and you would definitely not want that to happen to you they were like baked into a brick basically and and then which is which is wild because i i was reading about the real world legends for changelings and that is one thing that in ancient times would be done to changelings like real changelings, Mm. like not real changelings because presumably there weren't any but people suspected of being real changelings they would uh do something similar like baking them and then making them into like yeah (laughs) not food but yeah it was like putting them into an oven well, really look, look at what they did with the witches at the Salem witch trials. I mean, that was uh, they, they they were they were doing that kind of stuff thousands of years before that was happening. Like when fire, doubt, fire. Same, yeah, similar thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. This eternal, and that's a uh, an old belief across a lot of cultures that fire is is a purifying cleansing. agent. Yeah, yeah, doesn't seem that way to me. <laughs> it's that's like, not, you know, it's eternal. It's like the Roman version of peace, right? Destroy, uh, kill everything, and you have peace. 
Because well, there's nothing. <laughs> that's well, that's well, why fire is cleansing. When, when the Vikings invaded England, England used to burn them at uh, burn them alive. So uh, <laughs> they, they weren't Christians. So it's kind of a similar, yeah, kind of a similar type. I mean, across all different cultures, we see the baking of people by fire, unfortunately. Yeah. Since we started on real world stuff, we, I'll, I'll keep going with that for a minute here. People were really afraid of, in ancient times, certain cultures. Certainly, it wasn't super widespread as far as I could tell, but Germanic and English and other cultures had legend of a changeling, which was a sick ch or burdensome child. And that sounds like a really awful thing to say, a burdensome child. But we're talking about in ancient times where like one more mouth to feed can literally be the difference between your whole household starving or not. Make sure you keep the proper context and you think about what that means and so it, it's a it present presented ancient families with really tough tough choices like do we keep this child in order for people to do awful things to their own children they kind of have to perceive things differently you know you kind of twist your own mind around and you start thinking of this child as evil that's where these legends come from that, that survival you, of the fittest turns into cannibalizing your own my yes, god it is a lot like that yeah you have to kill off this child to let the rest of the family survive or, or some awful thing like that so they would portray that these evil children that culturally it developed that these children that were problematic were seen as evil that way it was less difficult emotionally to deal with uh you, if you could blame it on superstition then it removes your, you know, the the burden of your own mind dealing with the fact that you have to get rid of your own child. So that is, you know, very difficult to think about. But it's you could see how it applies here because we learn that the shapeshifters were immediately like Dopplers, like humans, like the first contact they had, it was it was they were freaked out and wanted to kill them all. Uh, so there was never any chance at any of a court or of any type. Now, if we go into more proper legends of shapeshifters whereas changelings were more like the the legend there was a fairy has replaced my real baby with its baby that's that's how they would justify killing it because they'd say this isn't my child this was swapped out by some fairy they took my kid and left their own and that's why its head is too large or that's why it's it has inflamed you know its ankles are too big or something like that you know something that looked like they would ex ex explain away deformities that way uh, like yennefer which is interesting because yennefer was looked upon as very uh, something that it could have been altered magically even great point yeah yeah and um and she was treated with revulsion so with more proper shape-shifting which is what a doppler is you know they can turn into whatever they want that is just a monstrous topic like if you go into almost Every almost literally every ancient religion has shapeshifting. Their gods, like Zeus, can shapeshift. Odin can shapeshift. Uh, like all these different Chinese deities can shapeshift, and Japanese. Just you name it. Pretty much everything. The oldest known story in the world is Gilgamesh. They're shapeshifting in Gilgamesh. Um, shapeshifting spirits. Occasionally variations on that, like where the gods instead of gods, it's like evil spirits that can shapeshift into people or animals that can shapeshift into people but it's too big of a topic for us to cover here other than just say it's a monstrous topic that has roots in almost every culture ever <laughs> so that's pretty cool as does eternal flames right that's yeah that's really popular it's fun that sapkowski picked two of the like biggest most widespread ancient beliefs for this one where he's usually a little more like niche with some of these things like with the with these short story with the uh, fairy tale references and things like that but this is different this is a much broader <laughs> topic <laughs>
In most of the countries known to Geralt, the production and possession of spiked lamias, also called Myhenian scourges, were strictly prohibited. Novigrad was no exception. <laughs> Uh, we have lamias, which aren't herblore, but lamias were those like the little disc sh uh, shield things that were whips that the Chappelle's guards had. Lamias symbolize hypocrisy, which is brilliant because we have like this church hypocrisy like all over the place here. So it's a banned weapon that the, the temple guards are allowed to use. <laughs> okay, then. There's multiple exceptions. We pointed out hypocrisy in other places, too. So I thought that was pretty nice little under, under uh, the radar theme there. The Passiflora is the passion flower, major association with Christ and his last hours alive. So, you know, passion of the Christ, you know, that's where that term kind of comes from, that movie <laughs> and, and that thought. It's not just about that movie, of course. But uh, and then Hawthorne is mentioned here, but we've covered Hawthorne a few times. It was actually in the first episode. So Geralt mentions it briefly, but that's pretty much it. Do you know what the eternal fire is? A flame that never goes out, a symbol of permanence, a way leading through the gloom, a harbinger of progress, of a better tomorrow. The eternal fire, Geralt, is hope for everybody. Everybody without exception. For if something exists that embraces us all, you, me, others, then that something is precisely hope. Nice. That is so good. <laughs> so there's, there's some dark, darker tones. The word harbinger, which is usually in reference to apocalyptic type of events, which is interesting because the first part of the ballad talks about the white frost and winter and then also the flame. And there's all, obviously this duality and polarization that we see within the story of The Witcher. So, But we'll talk a little bit about the, the eternal flame part of it. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk name. about <laughs> Hold my hand. So, 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 you feel my heart beating. <laughs> so, 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 fire was pretty much like the first thing that was worshipped. Was it like one of the first things that was worshipped by intelligent beings, at least apes? It seems like it. Obviously, we don't know for sure because you know we don't have footage or writing from back <laughs> then. But it's it's obviously one of the major technological breakthroughs from all of like human development. But we didn't know how to work it. We didn't know how to make it, right? So it was sacred because it was like if you had it, it meant life and, and warmth and, and health. And if you didn't, you were screwed. So it was it was you could see why they didn't ever wanted it to go out. And we still as humans now have these vestigial beliefs and, and fascination with fire because of how important it was to our long, long, long ago ancestors. And Kyle, you mentioned Prometheus. These myths are, are rooted around humans' relationship to fire in super long gone times it's it's because it all starts off with the, the flame being sacred to life important to the ability to live itself i mean the sun obviously <laughs> we could talk about that to talk about physics and and nuclear fusion and all of that but on a more personal level we kind of always try to equate our permanence with something and you know with something becoming afterlife i think it boils down to kind of how uh insecure humans are uh, in some way that we aren't permanent <laughs> and uh, 
It's pretty cool. Like Hephaestus is a uh, like fire in creation is also a big thing. Like blacksmiths and uh, and that sort of thing. So that's pretty cool. Aziz. Yeah, there's two major ways it was visualized by the ancients, as far as we understand it. There are two types of fires. There's the hearth fire and the forge fire. And the hearth fire is your home fire, and that's that's the the life and and home and and living one. And then forge is that's the forge of like protection and progress where you make tools and items so yeah i don't fully grasp that dichotomy but it's a probably a male female thing also oh good point yeah you're you're totally right because hephaestus and vulcan were males and then the goddess of the hearth for greeks was hestia and for romans it was vesta and those are both women and the the vestal virgins tended the fire of of vesta the sacred fire which was an eternal flame so that i think you nailed it yeah <laughs> comes down to gender again <laughs> so often when in doubt the answer is gender also greek gods like aries and yeah. uh, male aggression and, and you know female comfort and growth like there's a clear difference between <laughs> the, the two of them yeah the way these things are, are portrayed yeah totally so there's like it's the same thing with fire gods and and things like that if you look back you find not every religion has a fire god or whatever but there's always connections because it's such a crucial part of our own prehistory we have a couple of cool examples here. We have some real life examples of eternal flames. It's another thing that's just a massive, massive list. I, I started looking <laughs> this up and was like, oh, my God, this is such a thing. <laughs> McCall, you, do you want to tell us a little bit about sanctuary flames? That's one of the more well-known ones. Honestly, like, I wish I could tell you I, I knew more about the specific origins of it. But there, if you go into most synagogues, there, there will be what's called a ner tamid, which is a, an eternal flame um, that is burning all the time. There's a couple of other different like flame things in Judaism, but that specifically, it was, it was interesting when I was reading the story because it is such a generally lighthearted story and they keep referencing like the eternal flame. And to me, that's something like rather somber. So it's, it was like an interesting contrast. <laughs> That is something you got to give it to Sapkowski more so than any other author I can name that he's just so good at going being going from serious to, to silly and just on a turn of a dime and doing it really well. He's just so yeah. good at that. It's hard to do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like so that. good with tone. It's yeah. Yeah, like like a flame for me, like a representation for me. I just remember like sitting around the campfire, like you know, roasting hot dogs and marshmallows when I, I'm a kid. So that's like a a thing of comfort for me. But you know, for other people, it could represent something completely different. You know what I mean? Like like wildfires, for example. You know, like I, I like the, those come back every year. Those are kind of eternal in California. You know, I mean, like it really really depends on where you are and what place you're from and it's it's pretty interesting like all, all of the different kind of viewpoints of this eternal flame so a couple more examples from around the world uh yeah like you said mccall it's other it's part of other religions zoroastrian is probably is perhaps the most hmm. prominent like fire element to it it's, some people mistakenly say zoroastrian is fire worship it's not it just has a it's a major component fire is a major part of the worship cycle it was never a thing they didn't actually worship fire that's that's a misnomer and that's the main influence for relore in that religion in yes. a lesson fire Yes, like George took some of the things that are mistaken beliefs about Zoroastrian to build Rolorism, because those things are more fantastical and interesting in that way. <laughs> Christianity has plenty of stuff with fire, so does Islam, just all these major world religions, it's, it's fairly common. South India has several temples with flames that are apparently several centuries old, which that is just really cool. 
Paris uh, has one under the Eiffel Tower um, in honor of World War One. That's been going since 1921. <laughs> St. Louis has one that's even older by two years. St. Louis, uh, Missouri has one that's been going since 1919. Japan knocks them all out of the park with one at the Itsukushima Shrine that's 1200 years old, a flame that's been burning since 800 AD. Wow. Uh, wow. That's a, right? That's so cool. And they and the Japan has another awesome one that's the reverse. They started one after Fukushima. And uh, or I think it was after Fukushima. Maybe it was after World War II. I, I'm blanking out on when it was started, but they're going to extinguish it when nuclear power is gone oh, or when wow. nuclear weapons are gone. That's what they're going to. That's so it's going to burn until there's no nukes. Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? Wow. It's, actually, it's also a cemetery thing. Like, I think there's by the tomb of like JFK and, and Robert Kennedy. Uh, there's an eternal flame there. I think there might might be by like graves of unknown soldiers sometimes eternal flames but i could be wrong about that so those are man-made ones now there's a couple of cool non-man-made ones there's some natural gas burning flames that have existed for a while one has existed for 2500 years in olympus <sighs> national park in turkey which is apparently the source of of some of the myths and legends for mount camara uh around bellerophon one idea is that Bellerophon tamed this land, which was an area where goats and lions and snakes lived. And that's where the, the myth of the chimera comes from. That's just a guess that not my guess, but people that, you know, researchers, historians think that may be where it comes from. But anyway, 2,500 year old natural gas flame. That's <laughs> wild, right? And Kyle, back to what you were saying about uh, campfires. There's a, a flame that's been burning. Some hunters set a natural gas vent on fire in 1922 in New Zealand, and it has been burning ever since. And it's now a tour stop where you can go and have pancakes and tea cooked on the eternal flame. Oh, they better have Canadian maple syrup. <laughs> and there's a coal fire that's been burning in a place called Burning Mountain, Australia, for <laughs> 6,000 years. I don't know how they know it's been going that long, but that's what it said. I suspect so. a lot of this is... Uh... Guesstimated, maybe? Or... Yeah. <laughs> that's a nice word. <laughs> the, the, the Olympic flame isn't an eternal flame, right? They light it at a specific it is, time. I think. Is I it? Think is it? Eternal. Yeah, I think it is. Mm, that one's really interesting because it is represents like uh the spirit of competition and uh all of that which is awesome it is pretty neat to think about a flame that's been that been around that long it gives you kind of like a, a connection to the people who saw it first and everything I, I don't know it's it's pretty cool way back in the day when they were shooting javelins and rocks around <laughs> <laughs> yeah jordan alexander in the chat says mm, eternal flame pancakes <laughs> <laughs> And I know your songs, I, I know them, I've heard them. About Princess Vanda, who drowned in the River Duppy because no one wanted her. And about that kingfisher that fell into a privy. <laughs> okay, so Ludmilla says in Polish, kingfisher that fell into a privy rhymes. So it just sounds funny. There's, uh, okay. no, there's no actual story behind it, but the tra so of course the translation it no longer rhymes. So Well, I mean, I guess you could tie it into the very last book in the series with the Fisher King, but... Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's I wonder how you. Yeah. Uh, we would have to think of a, a different if we wanted to make it rhyme. Like, what's a fish that rhymes with a type of toilet? So many names for toilets and so many types of birds and fish. <laughs> I'm sure we could find one. <laughs> what's a bird? You know. Um, that's just a, <laughs> I'm sure we could find a fish that rhymes with toilet. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many words for both, right? Is it is a fluke a fluke a fish? Yes. Yeah, I believe the fluke so. that fell in the loo. 
<laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress. <laughs> so then also Ludmilla tells us that the name in the river, uh, the name of the river in the original text is Duppa. It says Duppy is, is, is a translation sort of, she says declension, which I admit, I don't know what declension means. It's some, it's, I guess it's a translation thing. So when you remove one P, she says, it's the Polish word for ass. <laughs> so she <laughs> drowned in the river ass. <laughs> and then the kingfisher that fell to a privy says more ass stuff going on. Uh, and Pol in Polish, W is read the same as V. So it's actually, so you read that as Princess Vanda, it would be Princess Vanda. Uh, I'll just read what she wrote. The Eternal Flame has one very small reference to the very famous Polis legend about the daughter of Krak, who is the guy from the Dragon Legend, which we discussed in a prior episode, if I remember correctly. I guess Bounds of Reason. And her name was Wanda, and she was a very brave and beautiful woman. There was a guy named Rudiger, who was a ruler of one of the German tribes who wanted Wanda to marry him, but she refused. So Rudiger invaded lands ruled by Wanda, and from that point, there's two different versions. One version says she led her army and defeated Rudiger, and he killed himself because of shame. And ruled peace. She ruled peacefully and stayed a virgin. The we second, can stop there. But yeah, that version's better. <laughs> the second version is Wanda didn't allow the war, didn't want the the war to happen because of her, so she committed suicide by throwing herself into the river. Uh, yeah, I like the first version better. The, the Vistula River, where it kind of sounds like Vespula. Oh, you're yeah. right. I should, yeah, I shouldn't have left that out. So good, good call there. And then she says Wanda became a legend and is known as the princess who didn't want the German. <laughs> nine, nine, nine. That's awesome. And that is a great segue to our final section, isn't it? Yay, funny moments. Funniest <laughs> moments. <laughs> We've already covered so many of them along the way, I think. I'm just going to have to start with Gerald's jacket saga, man. Come on. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny because it's so out of character. And yet, for some reason, it's just like, yeah, at this point in time, I, I feel you. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm being obsessed with this jacket. <laughs> like, like like he's a witcher right like he's not supposed to be concerned with like yeah, th uh, things like that like fashion or you know mo just money in general i mean he likes getting paid and stuff but not n nothing that really requires uh you to go out and be styling because witchers get dirty often yeah. and, they smell, and he, he doesn't and they get smell. paid in coin in the end he gets paid in a new jacket <laughs> <laughs> It's it's, fun. it's it's really funny, though, because like the whole like trope of the boys going out to the bar, you know, you get dressed up to go to the bar. You want to look good in case you, you know, you connect with someone and you see someone that you're attracted to. And it just kind of reminds me of that a little bit. So there's this great line um, when Geralt is, is in the market and he sees Vespula. She doesn't see him. The line is the customer was none other than Vespula, known to Geralt as the thrower of missiles. <laughs> 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 and, and how about the name of the guy who appointed Chappelle, the hierarch, his full name, hierarch Cyrus Engelkind Hemmelfart. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the names, right? Like Vivaldi. Yeah. Uh, I guess Vivaldi, I guess that's a, maybe a, a nod to the composer of Vivaldi. But I assume, but. Yeah, it's not exactly a common name. <laughs> Just in like Teleco Lundgrivink Hilator. Now that is a name, right? Like, geez, where did he I, come up with that one? I also love how he does, like, if I may, cousin, Teleco Lundgrivink Latort, Penstock for short, due, due to his close friends, and for the whole of Novigrad, a member of the large Bibbervelt family, spoke up. 
Like, it's just, I, I love when he, when Sepkowski does those, like, very specific and long-winded definitions of who people are. I'm surprised Aziz got to the, through the con- synopsis unscathed like that. You see, I just, when, I just couldn't even pronounce a word just there a second ago. So it's, impre- it's impressive, honestly. So let's see a couple more quotes we have here. Uh, Ludmilla dropped a quote that I liked. And so I was able to cut and paste from her post in the group instead of having to grab it myself. On Facebook, by the way, which you can all join and come hang out. Yes. So this is a really good line. This is when when da- when Dainty realizes, I don't know what the hell's going on, but this dude's making me money. So whatever he wants, just keep going. Sorrel reports that everything is ready, yelled Shrilly, and asks if it should start pouring. Yes, he should, the halfling bellowed, at once. By the red beard of old Rundurin, the Mivivaldi bellowed as soon as the gnome had shut the door. I don't understand anything. What is happening here? Pour what into what? I have no idea, Dainty admitted, but Vimy, the wheels of business must be oiled. <laughs> How about when uh, when Dandelion's trying to cover for him? He's like, <laughs> <laughs> he calls him Nutcase. He's like, yeah, he's his cousin, Nutcase Bibberveld. He's normally a nice guy, but the color purple just makes him, infuri- <laughs> makes him infuriated. <laughs> What? <laughs> oh, that's a really funny story. And the story is just bonkers, really, honestly. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a very rude comment, but I, I can't help laughing at it anyway when he's like, Dandelion says, when the messenger gnome is going back, he's like, what is that? Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Half of our podcast today was laughing, so. (laughs) That's okay. The next one will just be crying. Yeah, Yeah. we're really going on a roller coaster, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's less like this going forward and more of the sad, yeah. Oh, yeah, the last story in this book is just a gas. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) Nothing but laughter. No, but it's it's true, though. Even though the it does get more there's more dark than humor later it's still full of humor so i think that is that pretty much it do we have any pirouettes in this one i did not count any pirouettes i didn't notice one it's too bad because we could have had mirror pirouettes they could have like pirouetted oh. together you know i'm shaming you for that one <laughs> that was well earned that was well earned yeah. <laughs> That's going to do it today for the podcast surprise. Super excited to be back going into Sword of Destiny. The next podcast surprise, we'll be talking about a little sacrifice. Of course, we encourage everyone to join us. Read the short story, of course, in Sword of Destiny or to listen uh, on audio. I actually highly <laughs> recommend listening to um, A Little Sacrifice. It's the, the way, um, man, I'm blanking on his name, Peter something, reads it is just yeah, is wonderful. Peter, Peter McKenney? Yeah. Or is it yeah. So McKenney it's, or just Kenny? Uh, Peter, Peter, Kenny. Peter, Peter Kenny. Kenny. I'm saying yeah. McKenney for some but reason. But he is, he is Scottish, so it, it makes sense that the Mick would be. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Hopefully all of you are doing well. We really, really appreciate all of you being here with us today. Like I said, if you enjoyed this, like, subscribe, all of that. You want to support us, you can head over to Anchor, hit that support button. But yeah, I think that's going to do it for us today. Toss it. Are we going to sing? No, no. Okay. I'm just <laughs> no. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> that's going to do it for us today, everyone. And we hope that you have an awesome weekend. Uh, it's not Friday. It feels like Friday. But, you know. Cheers. Have a good one, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.